Church, I just want to say before we get into things this morning that I realize, as Tom mentioned, it's Pastor's Appreciation Month, uh, and I just want to say how much I appreciate you. Uh, I know it's, it's once a month we emphasize this, but really, as far as I'm concerned, it's all year long, and uh, we, we really appreciate all your love and your care. Uh, it, it really makes it a joy to serve here. Uh, we thank God for you, and one of the things that delights my heart as a pastor is to know that I'm not really special in this sense, right? Uh, I, I know that you love and care for one another uh, so much, and, and that's a testimony to the gospel and to, uh, to the work that Christ has done in our midst. And in fact, the scriptures say, you know, they'll know we are his followers by the way that we show love to one another. And so uh, I appreciate you. I thank God for you. And let's just keep loving Jesus together and eating Jesus together. Amen? All right, so... We're going to continue on in our series in John, and uh, we're going to be in John uh, 8.31 this morning, but uh, one second. All right, so in a group this size, this morning, there are likely three different types of people here. The first are those of you who are not Christians, whether you're an atheist or you follow some other form of spirituality or, or other religion, or maybe you're seeking and you're undecided, but you're open. That's the first type of person, someone who's, who's not a Christian. The second are Christians, uh, those of you who have put your faith alone in Christ alone, his life, his death, and his resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins. That's the second group. The third group is this, those who think that they are Christians, but are not really true Christians. You may even go through all the motions, and by all outward appearances, you are a good moral and religious person. Maybe you have a perfect Sunday school attendance record, or you've got the bumper sticker on your car. I don't know what it is, but uh, by all outward appearances, you appear to be a Christian, and you may even uh, yourself believe to be yourself to be a Christian, uh, but you are not a true believer. The Gospel of John is for all three types of people I just mentioned. John writes to awaken the faith of non-believers. He writes to encourage and to strengthen the faith of true believers, and he writes to wake up those who think that they are believers but are not. In fact, the reminder is right here on your bulletin cover, John 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This could be a little unsettling for you this morning. I mean, really, how can I know? How can I know if I'm a true believer or not? Well, let's turn to the words of Jesus who is the light of the world, and ask him to shed some light on this question for us this morning. So turn with me to John chapter 8. We're going to be in verses 31 through 59. If you need a pew Bible, you'll find today's text on page 1063. And once you're there, I invite you to please stand with me if you're able, out of reverence for the word of God. And follow along with me as I read. So Jesus said to the Jews 
who had believed him. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. Then they said to him, We are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, we are, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. He is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. And may we be as Job who treasured the words of the Lord's mouth more than 
his portion of food. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your word is a a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. God, enlighten our, our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, to see and to behold your word together this morning. God, may we see the treasures of Christ and rejoice together. Father, may your spirit quicken our hearts to see your word with fresh eyes, that our hearts would be changed to be made more like that of Jesus. Make us all more like Jesus this morning because of the time we spent in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So Jesus has just proclaimed that he is the light of the world in our previous passage. We looked at that last week. And John tells us in verse 30 that many believed in him. But we should not be too quick to assume that this means that we're true believers. And this is nothing new in John's gospel. We've already covered this ground He's made this distinction between true and false belief before. We've seen it in chapter 2, and we've also seen it in chapter 6. And here it is again. Jesus is going to expose the differences between true and false belief. And I want to show you from this text three markers of true belief versus false belief. Jesus' opening pronouncement in verses 31 and 32 will give us these three markers of true faith. But I want you to notice something before we really dive in. Uh, These three things do not make someone a true believer. They are descriptive of someone who already is a true disciple. Jesus doesn't say, if you abide in my word, you will be my disciples. No, he says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples. This is an important distinction. Okay? These are not things that we do to become true believers. They're descriptive of who true believers already are. Okay? So with that out of the way, the first mark of a true disciple is that they abide in Christ's word. They abide in the word. What is, what is Christ's word, though? And, and what does it mean to abide in it? So let's take the first part of this question. Because Jesus says, my word, singular, and not my words, plural, this shows that Jesus is thinking not of specific words that he has said, but of the sum of all his teaching. And the sum of all his words is nothing less than himself. All of his words draw attention to him. We've already seen this. I mean, here's a summary of where we've come from in John's gospel. In chapter 1, he makes plain that he is the only way to heaven. The angels will ascend and descend on the Son of Man, right? Alluding to that ladder uh, that Jacob dreamed about in Genesis. He's the only way to heaven. He is the way. In chapter 2, he's the true temple, In chapter 3, he must be lifted up as the serpent, as Moses lifted that serpent in the wilderness. He must be lifted up that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And in chapter 5, Jesus says that all the scriptures bear witness to him. Chapter 6, he says, I am the bread of life. Chapter 8, I am the light of the world. And in chapters 4 and 7, he says that I am the source of living water. The sum of all of Jesus' teaching is Jesus. 
He's pointing us to Jesus. He's pointing us to himself. And so to abide in his word is, is to abide in Christ himself. To abide in the sum of all of his teachings. So, so we shouldn't miss that all of Jesus' words point to himself. Now what does it mean to abide what does it mean to abide in his word? First, the Greek word for abide, meno, is found only two other times in John's gospel. The first is in John 2, 6. We've been here before. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding, there's our word, holding, 20 or 30 gallons. That's the same word we have for abide here in John chapter 8. The other place we see this word is in John 21, 25. He says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain. There's our word. Could not contain the books that would be written. So we have holding, we have containing, we have abiding. So to abide in Jesus' word means that we, we hold on to it, that we contain it, that we persevere, that we remain in it, that it sticks. We never let go of Christ's word. It fills us, and we seek to bring our lives into conformity with it. Every action, every deed, every thought, even when we come across things that we don't like, we still obey, and we ask God to change our hearts. Faith that abides in the word takes a longer view of things. It's, it's running a marathon. It's not a sprint. It proves itself over time. However, false belief sprouts up quickly and soon withers and dies. And this is one of the reasons I believe that when Paul writes to Timothy of the qualifications for elder, that a man is not to be a recent convert because there hasn't been sufficient time for him to really abide and to prove his faith genuine. True believers will persevere till the end. They will abide. By contrast, Jesus describes the opposite of abiding. Look at verse 43. Jesus says they cannot bear to hear his word. And in verse 37, Jesus says, his word finds no place in them. This is an interesting phrase, his word finds no place in them. Notice with me how many times in our text these Jews point to Abraham. How many times do they point to Abraham? Five times. I think that their Abrahamic national identity may have become something of an idol to them. And this is what sat on the throne of their hearts. And now that Jesus comes along and challenges this, the throne of their hearts is already occupied. There's no place for Jesus. They weren't willing to dethrone what was on the throne of their hearts. There was no room for Jesus. And when, when someone is confronted with their idols, when they're exposed, they're cornered, and there's either there, there, there's a fight or there's a repentance when you're confronted with your idol. 
There's a fight or there's a repentance, and clearly these false believers chose the former. And this is how every human being who ever lived starts out. I think we see this also at the end of our text in verse 59. They're they're outraged that Jesus would elevate himself over Abraham, that he would claim superiority over Abraham using the divine I am. For Abraham was I am. And this struck a nerve of the true affection of their hearts. They could not bear it. They would not have it. There was no room for his word in their hearts. Their hearts repelled the word. Even those who gave lip service and appeared to be religious. Isaiah 29, 13 points this out. He says, uh, the people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Think with me for a minute about how magnets work. I think it's a helpful illustration. When the poles of two magnets are the same, they repel one another. But when one is reversed and the opposite poles uh, are are exposed to one another, they, they attract and they come together. And this is how I think it is with genuine faith. Apart from Christ, in our sin, our hearts repel Christ. They repel his word. They want nothing to do with it. Instead, we're attracted to anything other than Christ. What is needed is for the polarity of our hearts to be changed. They need to be reoriented if they are ever going to desire Christ and his word. When our hearts are reoriented... We are, we are persuaded by Christ's word that it's true. And we're attracted to its beauty. There's a beauty about it that is consuming. And we treasure it. We treasure the value of it. If not, in our sin, Christ's word is not attractive. It's not valuable. And it's not, it doesn't con- convince us of its truthfulness. And before I move on to the next mark of a true disciple, consider these diagnostic questions. Do you desire Christ's word? Is it, is it beautiful to you? Is it attractive? Is Jesus attractive to you? Do you treasure his value? What occupies the throne of your heart? Is there room for Jesus there? These are questions worth asking. Now, this doesn't mean that you will never have dry spells or difficulties, but it does mean that over the long haul, God will give us the ability to hold on to Christ and his word. Now, the next mark of a true believer is is that they know the truth. The reason abiding in the word is so important is because the word is God's chosen means by which he reveals himself to us. It's how we know him, who is the truth. Jesus, the living word, is encountered through his written word. There's no other way that Christ's true disciples come to know him. No, no mystic practices, no private emotional experiences, but only through his word. 
And to know the Son is to know the Father. And this is Jesus' claim. He knows the Father. Verse 38, he was, he was with him. Verse 42, he came from him and was sent by him. Jesus knows the Father and keeps his word, verse 55. Because Jesus knows the Father, he seeks to honor him, verse 50. By contrast, those of false faith do not know the Father. Jesus knows this because these false believers bear no family resemblance to the Father. If God were their Father, as they claim in verse 41, they would love Jesus and they would do the works of the Father, but they didn't. It's even worse, though. Jesus says their their true Father is the devil. That is who they truly know. And they don't know the truth because they know him who is a liar and a murderer. Jesus knows this because of the fruit of their character. They bear the resemblance of their true father. Have you ever had that experience? You know, maybe in church, you see the kids running around, someone does something, and you're like, ah, that's got to be a Hurley, you know, or, or that's got to be a Mira, right? Hopefully because they did something really wonderful, right? And they're thinking about... Anyway, but this is exactly Jesus' point. Uh, In Matthew 7, I want to read this text for you in just a moment, but this is the point. It doesn't matter what you say. The fruit of your deeds will reveal who you know and who you belong to. Matthew 7, starting in verse 15, I'm going to read through to 23, but this is Jesus' teaching. He says, beware of false prophets. Very similar theme, right, to where we are today in John Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. True believers know the truth and they bear the fruit of knowing the truth. Here's another diagnostic question for you before I move on to our final mark of true belief. Do you say that you love Jesus but functionally live as if you don't? Do you occupy a pew on Sundays giving lip service to Jesus but live for the approval of others the rest of the week? What evidence or fruit can you point to in your own life that proves that you know the truth? 
wrestle with these questions. If you don't know the truth, turn to it. If you do know the truth, you will, set, you will be set free by it. And this is the final mark of a true disciple, set free by the truth. But what is the nature of this freedom? It's worth examining. Our text shows us two ways that we're set free. The first one is in verses 34 to 36. Jesus teaches that we are slaves to sin. Sin enslaves us by producing in us compelling desires that make anything look more desirable than Jesus. You can make a case for this being the essence of sin, desiring something more than Jesus and acting on it. And when seen in this way, sin is truly sobering because we tend to think of sin as only the bad things that we do. Lying, stealing, cheating, murdering, right? The, the, the yucky stuff in life, right? That most of us tend to avoid, or at least avoid the appearance of, right? Or uh, some view sin in this way, and these aren't wrong ways of seeing sin, but uh, some view it this way. We, we see sin as just a failure to do the right thing, right? So we're, we're either staying away from that bad stuff or we're, we're doing the good stuff, right? Uh, a failure to do the good stuff is another way people tend to view sin. But when we see sin as simply a list of do's and don'ts, I think we miss the point. It's deeper than this. It's more toxic than this. Sin at our core is about the desires of our hearts. We sin because something else is more desirable to us than Jesus. If this is true, we're all in trouble. Because this means that even good things, even good things could be sin then. Things like family, children, a spouse, a friendship. Sports, education, career success, or even patriotism and national identity can be sinful if we find those things more desirable than Jesus. So to be set free from sin is to have our hearts changed. To have our hearts changed. To have them reoriented like the poles of a magnet. So that the things that we used to desire now repel us when compared to Jesus. And we have awakened in ourselves a new desire and a new attraction for Jesus. That's what happens when he changes our hearts. The polarity of our hearts is changed. And we reject those things in compared to Jesus that used to uh, sit on that throne of our hearts and instead we're drawn to Jesus. We have a new desire and a new attraction for Jesus. Now to be clear, to be set free from sin is not a freedom to do whatever we want, but it's a freedom to love and to be attracted to Jesus as we ought. That's the freedom that Christ came to give us. So this is the first thing we're freed from, the dominion of sin. The second thing that we're freed from is the damnation of sin. In verses 51 and 52, Jesus says that a true disciple will never see or taste death. But these false believers object to this 
Because if, if Abraham and the prophets kept God's word and yet they still died, and Jesus is now saying that if they keep his words, they will never die, are you greater than Abraham? Again, I think this is another clue who was on the throne of their hearts. I think their, their Abrahamic national identity was an idol to them. Are you greater than Abraham? This was offensive to them. But Jesus, he, he, he's not talking about physical death here. I don't think that's what he has in mind. At least not in the immediate sense. It's helpful to understand death as, as separation. If you've ever been to a wake and, and viewed a deceased loved one, you, you observe the body and you know as you look at it that w- what made that person, uh, that person is not there anymore. Their soul has been separated from their body. This is physical death. Similarly, spiritual death is when the soul is separated from God. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God said that they would surely die. And they did. They died in that instant. They died spiritually. Their souls were separated from God and they were expelled from the garden. Physical death came eventually, but spiritual death was immediate. And similarly now, when Jesus frees us from from death... He makes us alive spiritually in an instant. But freedom from physical death will come later on at the resurrection. So Jesus is saying that that spiritual death, that true believers will never see it. They'll never taste it. They'll never taste that kind of death. When Pastor Donald Barnhouse lost his wife, he was left two young daughters, and as they were driving together in the car to go to the funeral, he felt this great need to try to explain the death of their mother to them. And as they're on their way, they stopped at a traffic light, and a large truck pulled up alongside of them that cast a shadow over the car and it darkened everything in the car. He turned to his daughters and he asked them if they would rather be struck by that truck or be struck by the shadow of that truck. One of the daughters responded, that's a silly question, Daddy. That shadow can't hurt you. I would rather be hit by the shadow than by the truck. Then he explained to his daughters that their mother's physical death was as if she'd been struck by a shadow. This is what Jesus is promising, that true believers will never see or taste death. It's only a shadow. We will never be cut off from God. Only our souls will be cut off from our physical bodies. And even that is temporary. Even that is temporary because of the future resurrection to come. So true believers are set free from sin, both the dominion of sin and the damnation of sin. But these false believers miss the point. They object, claiming they're slaves to no one because they're offspring of Abraham. 
You see, the Jews believe that because they were Abraham's offspring by blood, then they are God's people and slaves to no one. And so in verse 37, Jesus acknowledges their blood relationship to Abraham. But in verse 39, he rejects their spiritual relationship to Abraham. He tells them that if they were truly Abraham's children, they would do his works. Paul explained to the Galatians what the works of Abraham are and how one truly becomes his offspring spiritually. Galatians 3, 7 and 9 says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Today is the day. Today is the day that Abraham saw from a distance and longed to see come to fruition. Jesus Christ took our sins on the cross and paid for them to make us members of his family. He suffered both physical death on the cross and spiritual death, rejection by the Father. He was struck by the shadow and by the truck to pay for your sin. And he rose again on the third day to conquer death and to guarantee our own future resurrection. And now, this is the day that Abraham longed to see when many would turn from their sin, whose hearts would be reoriented, repolarized, to put their faith in Jesus and set them free. There's a lot of talk these days about your truth, live your truth. Well, I'll tell you this, your truth will not set you free. Your blood relatives will not set you free. Your moralism and religiosity will not set you free. No amount of your own effort will set you free. Only the Son sets you free. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Do you believe this this morning? If so, I pray that God is changing the polarity of your heart, even in this moment. Receive his forgiveness by turning from your sin, putting your faith in in Christ alone, that you would know the truth, be set free by the truth, and that you would abide in the truth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your word that is powerful and effective. We thank you that you came to set us free. But Father, many of us don't know that we're slaves in the first place. Father, I pray that the light of your word would shine brightly in hearts this morning. Show them their need for you, Jesus, to set them free. Show them that they are slaves to things that will only end in death, both physical and spiritual. God, we thank you that Jesus took the penalty for our sin the physical death on the cross and the spiritual death of separation from the Father. God, we, we thank you. We thank you that you loved the world so much that you sent your Son 
to die for it, that whoever believes in him would, have, would not perish but have everlasting life. God, I pray that your spirit would quicken hearts of unbelievers this morning and turn them to you, reorient their hearts, give them a, a new desire and attraction for you, Jesus, and may the things that they've uh, desired before in comparison with you, Jesus, just pale in comparison. God, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.